Welcome back to another episode of the Colorectal Quiz. I'm Shimon Jacobs, Colorectal Surgery Fellow at Children's National in Washington, D.C. In today's episode, we'll review a case of a baby born with imperfect anus and sustained a perforation in the neonatal period. Today, we have our hosts, Dr. Levitt, Dr. Fisher, Dr. Hira Ahmad, Pete Search Fellow at Seattle Children's Hospital, and Dr. Levitt will introduce our special international guest. Sebastian King, our buddy, is joining us from Melbourne, Australia. It has to be appropriate to colorectal uh, podcast to be talking about from down under, so that's fine. Sebastian um, is runs the colorectal uh, program in, in Melbourne at Royal Children's, where uh, Dr. Stevens was, who really figured out the anatomy of an anorectal malformation patient for the first time by dissecting cadavers. Justin Kelly was one of his trainees. And then Justin Kelly went to Boston Children's Hospital for additional training. And he met a young fellow, also a trainee named Alberto Pena. And Justin Kelly taught the Stevens technique to all the Boston Children's surgeons, including Alberto Pena. And it was based on the fact that you had to dissect in the perineal space attempting to be within the puborectalis sling and finding the rectum and pulling it through the sling. That was the concept. And Alberto then, and that was in 1972 when he finished his training. And then he started to use the Stevens technique from 1972 to 1980. And he was very frustrated by the Stevens technique because it gave him poor exposure. And he was, like he liked to say, a maximally invasive surgeon. In 1980, with the help of Peter DeVries, launched the posterior sagittal approach that we all know and love. So thank you, Sebastian, for being a disciple of that yeah. high-level colorectal origin. One unique distinction is he's the first surgeon in the world to successfully get the government to support a colorectal program. And now we are ready for our case presentation by Dr. King. So this is a boy who's now um, five months old, born at 34 weeks, uh, quite small to just over two kilos and uh, had been fed and then had a little bit of vomiting. So um, it wasn't until about 30 hours of age um, where there was some concern about abdominal distension, bile-stained aspirates, and then uh, it was noted that he actually had no anus. If you're following this podcast on the Stay Current app, you can click on image one to see a photo of the perineum as Dr. King describes the physical exam findings. There was no opening on the perineum. Um, and there was no passage of meconium uh, into the urinary catheter with a tiny little dimple um, near the base of the scrotum, but there was no meconium coming out of that. Um, so at that stage, uh, with the abdominal distension, uh, an x-ray was performed and um, that showed a perforation. Image two shows an anterior-posterior plane film of the chest and abdomen, showing a large lucency throughout the abdomen, particularly under the diaphragm, which has been pushed upward into the chest. There are smooth, dark contours of the lateral abdominal walls and regular signs showing both sides of bowel wall, consistent with a large volume of free air. So you're telling me that a newborn is fed and the next thing you know, he's perforated and he's only 30 hours old. 
you know, we have to be mindful that if we don't pick these up um, in the first 24 hours, that that next, that next 24 hours sort of through to 48 hours of age is a really critical phase. And particularly if there's, um, I think, um, if there's no clear opening into the urethra, be it uh, prostatic or bulbar. Jason, doesn't that scare you a bit? 30 hours and you... Yes, this is early. That's Dr. Jason Frischer, director of the colorectal center at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Often we're at referral centers. We're not seeing these patients till that second day of life. We get the workup. Usually it's not till the second day that we're going to the operating room and doing whatever definitive treatment. I wonder whether or not, you know, uh, because of the prematurity, whether or not that has um, had something to play with this kid. I don't know. How do you miss an imperfect anus on physical exam? Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting because we had a, you know, thinking about a, a baby that came to our unit only this week, and this little one did have some meconium uh, in the nappy, but that was because they had a, uh, a urethral fistula. Obviously, we don't know where it is yet, but um, they, they, that again, that child had been a little delayed in their diagnosis because somebody had seen some meconium and therefore had signed that off as... Um, uh, has passed meconium, but it was only once the belly started to blow up a little bit that uh, somebody had a, a bit better look and realised there was uh, nothing at the at the perineum. So it is it's it's a bit of a worry. W by the way, by the way for those for those of you who are con who are confused, a nappy is a diaper. All right, <laughs> I love it. I think this is the second or third time we've had the word nappy used on our podcast, and I enjoy it every time. No, we should that... put the picture on the state current app to clarify what nappy is. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, there needs to be somewhat of a routine in the physical exam in, the new, in any newborn nursery. The fact that we no longer do rectal temps, I believe, has increased the incidence of missing anal anomalies, particularly if there's meconium in the nappy. This is a patient that if you had as part of your routine to do a rectal temp, obviously you would notice that there was a problem. What did you do before going to the operating room? So the, so the baby was intubated uh, prior to transfer. Uh, in terms of access, they had a, a couple of peripheral uh, access points. And then once they got to us, ended up with an arterial line um, and a nasogastric tube, obviously. And then the catheter was placed by us when they arrived. Urinary Ur catheter? Yeah, urinary catheter, yeah. Okay. Uh, the abdomen was very uh, distended, uh, tense, uh, tender, um, and there was concern about the um, uh, peripheral perfusion, um, so really poor perfusion to the lower limb, so concern about a, a degree of abdominal compartment, particularly in a, you know, a little 2.1 2 kilo baby. Let me so, ask you, did you end up getting an echo before going to the OR? No, no echo preoperatively, but we knew that had good antenatal um, care. So we knew from the antenatal scans that there was no significant cardiac anomaly. So what was your approach in the theater? So yeah, so certainly off the theater at 40 hours of age, typical lower left uh, quadrant incision. So, um, I often say to our trainees, you know, where do these babies perforate and and often the, the initial comment will be, oh, they perforate in the cecum, you know, because of Laplace's law and people thinking about, you know, where the colon's largest. But as we all know, you know, in these children, the colon's largest in that uh, distal sigmoid and into the rectum. 
Um, and so this child had the pretty typical perforation um, for this scenario. Um, but certainly a large amount of um, uh, fecal soiling and uh, free fluid in the abdomen. In Hirschsprung's disease, when there's a perforation, where is the perforation? Hira? I think it's Hirschsprung. It's either right at the transition or in the cecum. Well, most babies with Hirschsprungs don't perforate because they have a lot of colon to empty out the high pressure. The ones that perforate usually perforate in the cecum, and those are very typically transition zones close to the hepatic flexure. Yep. So there's not a lot of colon to build up ahead of pressure to release it. Anorectal malformation, the pressure, the baby can't empty because there's no anal opening. And to Sebastian's interesting point from before, there's no fistula in a case that might perforate or a very, very tiny fistula where the, where the meconium can't flow. And it's the sigmoid that's big. Tell me about the perforation. It's not like a blowout, like a spontaneous ileal perf. It's a, right. it's a longitudinal tear uh, parallel to the tenei uh, on the anti-mesenteric edge. The first time I came across this as a trainee, um, sort of looked at this and thought, you know, wow, do we actually need to, um, do we need to remove some of this colon? But uh, thankfully um, didn't do that, just closed, uh, closed it up. And that's exactly what uh, we uh, did in this situation. The tear... You, I think yep. you mentioned was distal sigmoid proximal rectum. Yep. So is that where you brought up your colostomy or did you do something different? After sort of cleaning everything out and washing everything out, we closed the, um, uh, the defect and then had enough proximal uh, sigmoid to be able to bring it at the normal point, so near the reflection of descending into sigmoid. Mark, I think this is an important point. It's rare, right? We don't see that many perforated anorectal malformation patients. For just a typical perforation in a newborn, you clean up and you bring up a proximal stoma and, you know, add your perforation site, plus or minus a mucous fistula versus a Hartman's. But in this case, you didn't do that because you're thinking of step two. Yeah. But I think there are cases out there that are impending perforations and we have to prevent them. And we have to be aware of what's happening with that abdomen. And delaying such a patient um, is, at your, as, is at that patient's peril. But if you have a tense abdomen, then it may need to have a colostomy that night um, yep. and not wait, not wait until the morning. So, um, and in that situation, really need to be mindful of making an adequate incision. Uh, an incision that's made too small has meant that a uh, finger's gone in to try to deliver a big dilated loop, and particularly in one that's you know, distended. And then all of a sudden, the mesentery's got a hole in it, and the marginal vessel's damaged. And so I think I think we've just got to be mindful that sometimes the incision needs to be bigger than you'd like it to be. In the baby, with, with even with a fistula, in whom the fistula does not successfully empty the meconium you can gently dilate that fistula at the bedside. The one that comes to mind is a vestibular fistula mm. when the baby's distended. You can do the same with a perineal fistula. In a male, you need to be very careful not to dilate towards the anterior, right? You don't want to injure the urethra. But yep. there are patients that cannot go to the OR that easily 
to get a colostomy, let's say the baby has a critical coarctation, they may need a gentle dilation to decompress them and delay your, you may get away with it in a perineal fistula to never need a colostomy and then you do the delayed repair. So the patient recovered after their um, beautiful colostomy that you've created. And at what point did you think the baby was well enough to do the distal colostogram? Yeah, so um, we would normally do our colostograms at about six weeks uh, in, the, in the standard setting. Um, uh, for this child, we pushed it back a couple of weeks for a couple of reasons. One, because of the perforation and two, because of their prematurity. Um, and, uh, and made sure that our radiology team knew that they'd had a perforation um, so that uh, we could be judicious with our uh, uh, pressure in the distal colostogram, but also if they found some unusual findings on the anterior wall or the anti-mesenteric edge, then, then it wouldn't be a surprise. A key point is the communication. These studies within their term is high pressure and, and Warning the radiologist before that is the uh, collaborative thing to do. Now on the Stay Current app, click on image three to follow as we discuss the distal colostogram. Yeah, so I've just given you one uh, shot there, but you can see that we've got our standard process of the um, uh, marker on the perineum, uh, all these things that we've learned courtesy of uh, Mark and Jason and their collaborations with the uh, radiologist over the last number of years. We, we, we knew that we were uh, the, going to have adequate um, length based on where we had formed the stoma. And I think to Jason's point before, you might be worried if you had uh, brought the stoma out at the site of perforation um, and really uh, about, a, about a centimetre or so distance between um, where the rectum is and where the uh, perineal skin is. Um, but the key point here is this little rat's tail fistula, which came out onto that tiny little uh, spot that had been noticed at the base of the scrotum. Um, and so with a little bit of uh, contrast actually coming out uh, to that. Now, there'd never been any meconium passed through, through there, which is interesting considering how, um, you know, the kid was dilated enough to perforate. Um, but whether or not they perforated because they weren't able to sort of decompress through that little fistula. And actually, you can even make out a sacrum here, which looks of good length, which is yep. consistent with the lowness of the rectum. So essentially, this was a about to be a perineal fistula, but didn't quite make it, quite before, make it. They, before they perforated and you uh, diverted them. I will tell you though, be very careful. This could be a low rectum in a bulbar fistula. Yep. The rectum can be this low. And I have seen patients who the surgeon in whom the surgeon has gone in and rescued this rectum, made a beautiful anoplasty and ignored the connection to the bulbar urethra. So let me ask you guys a question because that can happen. Mm -hmm. Any, when you go in for the definitive and you have this workup and you have this colostogram, is there any workup you do beyond this when going to the OR for your definitive repair in a boy? So this little one will, um, is actually uh, being operated on next week um, uh, in the theatre. So we'll cystoscope him 
um, and and have a look and see whether or not the urethra, what the appearance of the urethra is, and, and leave the catheter in, you know, put that over a wire, um, and uh, and then we'll also um, have have a little look at the um, that opening onto the um, base of the scrotum, with a view that if we can slide a slippery wire through that. Um, then that will give us some uh, sense of where that comes out onto the, the base of the rectum. We were talking to our urology colleagues about you know, this boy and uh, it'll be, even if there's no fistulous um, communication to the urethra, whether or not the urethra itself will be uh, completely normal, because obviously there's some field change defect there uh, and you know, being, being mindful of whether or not you've got a duplication of the urethra or whether or not this is just running along in parallel. And I've certainly um, had described to me those that have chased after this for a length, uh, which then can be problematic for the urethra long-term. This could be a bulbar fistula. Hmm. Um, and what probably is happening here is this long fistula is paralleling the urethra. So the urethra is very close by to this fistula. And I would have loved to see, let's say a VCUG or something to prove that this is not a bulbar fistula. Obviously we talked about the technique, making sure it's not a bulbar fistula. The strategy of doing cystoscopy is nice, although I will tell you sometimes it's very difficult to see a bulbar fistula cystoscopically. You talked about what to do about this rat's tail. Do not chase that thing because you're going to bugger the urethra and you're going to get into spongiosum tissue. And if you just disconnect the rectum from the urethra, it will just all disappear. Uh, that, yeah. that, that fistula's communication will disappear. And I think it's a mistake to go charging after it. And then just to complete the discussion, if the perineal fistula would have made uh, muconium beads in the uh, scrotal raffe or mucosal beads. They're quite pretty. They're either white or black. All you need to do is unroof those. There's not much more to it than that. And then just rescue the rectum and do a proper uh, anoplasty. That's our case presentation for this week. Let's review the main teaching points from today. Thank you so much for sharing this case. I think this is... Um... Really, any pediatric surgeon can come across this. Uh, lessons that I learned, and I learned a lot today. First, make sure you look at the bottom and see if there's a opening for evacuation. Two, the little scary part, I think everyone on this screen was scared about the perforation at hour approximately 30 of life, because I think many of us have taken a patients to the OR for their stomas or repair after that time period. But as we mentioned, and you know, good exa abdominal exams, not just leaving the baby there. Um, I think that 24 hour mark is decision time of what are you going to do next and making sure everyone's on top of taking care of that baby. I learned where the perforation occurs in anorectal malformation, different than Hirschsprung's disease and how do the approach is different. So for the anorectal malformation, repaired the defect and then brought up the proper stoma of a descending proximal sigmoid colostomy and bringing up a mucus fistula, delayed the mucus fistulogram a little bit to allow for more healing, communicated with the radiologist about the situation. Looking forward to a great repair next week. Sebastian, do you have a um, 
a joke to end the podcast? I would be, uh, this one from my son many years ago, which he says that he came up with, but okay. Have you seen the film Constipation? Oh, that's been not, that's on episode yeah. one, I think. Oh, there you go. It's, it hasn't come out yet. So yeah, he, he told me that he, he came up with that years ago. So I'll that's, tell him that he's telling me fibs. Yeah, we we um, we're in we're in volume two of the colorful jokes. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. Check out the Stay Current app for more episodes of the colorectal quiz and other great pediatric surgery content. Because knowledge should be free.